Chapter Two, Section Three of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Two, Section Three: Federalism and Republicanism as Allies. It is not surprising, consequently, that Jefferson, who had been a lion in opposition, was transformed by the assumption of power into a lamb. Inasmuch as he had been denouncing every act of the Federalists, since the consummation of the Union, as dangerous to American liberties or as inimical to the public welfare, it was to be anticipated, when he and his party assumed office, that they would seek both to tear down the Federalist structure and rear in its place a temple of the true Republican faith. Not only did nothing of the kind follow, but nothing of the kind was even attempted. Considering the fulminations of the Republicans during the last ten years of Federalist domination, Jefferson's first inaugural is a bewildering document. The recent past, which had but lately been so full of dangers, was ignored, and the future, the dangers of which were much more real, was not for the moment considered. Jefferson was sworn in with his head encircled by a halo of beautiful phrases, and he and his followers were so well satisfied with this beatific vision that they entirely overlooked the desirability of redeeming their own past or of providing for their country's future. Sufficient unto the day was the popularity thereof. The Federalists themselves must be conciliated, and the national organization achieved by them is by implication accepted. The Federalist structure, so recently the prison of the free American spirit, becomes itself a large part of the temple of democracy. The Union is no longer inimical to liberty. For the first time we begin to hear from good Republican mouths some sacred words about the necessary connection of liberty and union. Jefferson celebrated his triumph by adopting the work, if not the creed, of his adversaries. The adoption by Jefferson and the Republicans of the political structure of their opponents is of an importance hardly inferior to that of the adoption of the Constitution by the states. It was the first practical indication that democracy and federalism were not as radically antagonistic as their extreme partisans had believed, and it was also the first indication that the interests which were concealed behind the phrases of the two parties were not irreconcilable. When the democracy rallied to the national organization, the American state began to be a democratic nation. The alliance was, at yet, both fragile and superficial. It was founded on a sacrifice by the two parties, not merely of certain errors and misconceptions, but also of certain convictions, which had been considered essential. The Republicans tacitly admitted the substantial falsity of their attacks upon the federal organization. The many Federalists who joined their opponents abandoned without scruple the whole spirit and purpose of the Hamiltonian national policy. But at any rate, the reconciliation was accomplished. The newly founded American state was, for the time being, saved from the danger of being torn asunder by two rival factions, each representing irreconcilable ideas and interests. The Union, which had been celebrated in 1789, was consummated in 1801. Its fertility was still to be proved. When Jefferson and the Republicans rallied to the Union and to the existing Federalist organization, the fabric of traditional American democracy was almost completely woven. Thereafter, the American people only had to wear it and keep it in repair. The policy announced in Jefferson's first inaugural was, in all important respects, merely a policy of conservatism. The American people are possessed of a set of political institutions, 
which deprived them of any legitimate grievances, and supplied them with every reasonable opportunity. And their political duty was confined to the administration of these institutions, in a faithful spirit and their preservation from harm. The future contained only one serious danger. Such liberties were always open to attack, and there would always be designing men whose interest it was to attack them. The great political responsibility of the American democracy was to guard itself against such assaults, and should they succeed in this task, they need have no further concern about their future. Their political salvation was secure. They had placed it, as it were, in a good sound bank. It would be sure to draw interest provided the bank were conservatively managed, that is, provided it were managed by loyal Republicans. There was no room or need for any increase in the fund, because it already satisfied every reasonable purpose. But it must not be diminished, and it must not be exposed to any risk of diminution by hazardous speculative investments. During the next fifty years, the American democracy accepted almost literally this Jeffersonian tradition. Until the question of slavery became acute, they ceased to think seriously about political problems. The lawyers were preoccupied with certain important questions of constitutional interpretation, which had their political implications, but the purpose of these expositions of our fundamental law was the affirmation, the consolidation, and, towards the end, the partial restriction of the existing Federalist organization. In this, as in other respects, the Americans of the second and third generations were merely preserving what their fathers had wrought. Their political institutions were good, in so far as they were not disturbed. They might become bad, only in case they were perverted. The way to guard against such perversion was, of course, to secure the election of righteous Democrats. From the traditional American point of view, it was far more important to get the safe candidates elected than it was to use the power so obtained for any useful political achievement. In the hands of unsafe men, that is, one's political opponents, the government might be perverted to dangerous uses, whereas in the hands of safe men, it could at best merely be preserved in safety. Misgovernment was a greater danger than good government was a benefit, because good government, particularly on the part of federal officials, consisted, apart from routine business, in letting things alone. Thus the furious interest, which the good American took in getting himself and his associates elected, could be justified by reasons founded on the essential nature of the traditional political system. The good American Democrat had, of course, another political duty besides that of securing the election of him and his friends. His political system was designed, not merely to deprive him of grievances, but to offer him superlative opportunities. In taking the utmost advantage of those opportunities, he was not only fulfilling his duty to himself, but he was helping to realize the substantial purpose of democracy. Just as it was the function of the national organization to keep itself undefiled and not to interfere, so it was his personal function to make hay while the sun was shining. The triumph of Jefferson and the defeat of Hamilton enabled the natural individualism of the American people free play. The democratic political system was considered tantamount in practice to a species of vigorous, licensed, and purified selfishness. The responsibilities of the government were negative, those of the individual were positive. And it is no wonder that in the course of time, his positive responsibilities began to look larger and larger. This licensed selfishness became more domineering in proportion as it became more successful. 
if a political question arose which in any way interfered with his opportunities the good american began to believe that his democratic political machine was out of gear did abolitionism create a condition of political unrest and interfere with good business then abolitionists were wicked men who were tampering with the ark of the constitution and in much the same way the modern reformer who proposes policies looking toward a restriction in the activity of corporations and stands in the way of the immediate transaction of the largest possible volume of business is denounced as un-american these were merely crude ways of expressing the spirit of traditional american democracy which was that of a rampant individualism checked only by a system of legally constituted rights the test of american national success was the comfort and prosperity of the individual and the means to that end a system of unrestricted individual aggrandizement and collective irresponsibility the alliance between federalism and democracy on which this traditional system was based was excellent in many of its effects but unfortunately it implied on the part of both the allies a sacrifice of political sincerity and conviction and this sacrifice was more demoralizing to the republicans than to the federalists because they were the victorious party a central government constructed on the basis of their democratic creed would have been a government whose powers were smaller more rigid and more inefficiently distributed than those granted under our federal constitution as may be seen from the various state constitutions subsequently written under jeffersonian influence when they obtained power either they should have been faithful to their convictions and tried to modify the federal machinery in accordance therewith or they should have modified their ideas in order to make them square with their behavior but instead of seriously and candidly considering the meaning of their own actions they opened their mouths wide enough to swallow their own past and then deliberately shut their eyes they accepted the national organization as a fact and as a condition of national safety but they rejected it as a lesson in political wisdom and as an implicit principle of political action by so doing they began that career of intellectual lethargy superficiality and insincerity which ever since has been characteristic of official american political thought this lack of intellectual integrity on the part of the american democracy both falsified the spirit in which our institutions had originated and seriously compromised their future success the union had been wrought by virtue of vigorous responsible and enterprising leadership and of sound and consistent political thinking it was to be perpetuated by a company of men who believed in enterprising and responsible leadership, and who had abandoned and tended to disparage anything but the most routine political ideas. The American people, after passing through a period of positive achievement, distinguished in all history for the powerful application of brains to the solution of an organic political problem, the American people, after this almost unprecedented exhibition of good will and good judgment, proceeded to put a wholly false interpretation on their remarkable triumph they proceeded also to cultivate a state of mind which has kept them peculiarly liable to intellectual ineptitude and conformity the mixture of optimism conservatism and superficiality which has until recently characterized their political point of view has made them almost blind to the true lessons of their own national experience the best that can be said on behalf of this traditional american system of political ideas is that it contained the germ of better things the combination of federalism and republicanism which formed the substance of the system did not constitute a progressive and formative political principle but it pointed in the direction of a constructive formula the political leaders of the era of good feeling 
who began to use with some degree of conviction certain comely phrases about the eternal and inseparable alliance between liberty and union were looking towards the promised land of american democratic fulfillment as we shall see the kind of liberty and the kind of union which they had in mind were by no means indissolubly and inseparably united and both of these words had to be transformed from a negative and legal into a positive moral and social meaning before the boasted alliance could be anything but precarious and sterile but if for liberty we substitute the word democracy which means something more than liberty and if for union we substitute the phrase american nationality which means so much more than a legal union we shall be looking in the direction of a fruitful alliance between two supplementary principles it can i believe be stated without qualification that whenever the nationalist idea and tendency has been divided from democracy its achievements have been limited and partially sterilized it can also be stated that the separation of the democratic idea from the national principle and organization has issued not merely in sterility but in moral and political mischief all this must remain mere assertion for the present but i shall hope gradually to justify these assertions by an examination of the subsequent course of american political development end of chapter two